So the other day, I'm uh, getting ready to come over here to work, and so I do what I normally do. I wake up, and I go take a shower. That way I can wake up and feel refreshed for the day, and I go get, get changed, get my clothes on, sit down, grab my coffee. Actually, I grab my coffee first before I sit down. Grab my coffee, grab my Bible, grab my journal, sit down. I'm reading Scripture and talking to God and reading through stuff and making observations and just, you know, kind of have this conversation with God, sipping my coffee. And then Kim walks over, as she does every, pretty much every morning, and hands me my, my breakfast because that's just something that she does for me because she loves me. And there's things I do for her that, yeah, there's things I do for her that show that I love her. Well, I can't think of one more off the top of my head, but that's, what's matter, that's not the point. The point is, she brings us breakfast, and so I'm continuing to read, you know, and writing things down, and drinking coffee, eating breakfast, and then I get done, and it's time for me to come over here. So I, uh, I go into the bathroom, and I, I floss. I was, uh, I went to the dentist the other day, too, and the, the lady who was flossing my teeth says, you have beautiful teeth. That's actually pretty excited about it. Anyways. So I floss, I brush my teeth, and, and then I kiss, give Kim a kiss and head on out. Get in the car, start driving down the driveway, and I'm like, not really seeing real clearly. I <laughs> forgot my contacts. So back the car up, come walking in. Kim's like, what's up? I forgot my contacts. She slaps me, and I walk into the, into the back. <laughs> no, she didn't. So I go in there, I take the contacts, I'll put them in my eyes, and I'm Okay, I'm good. So I get in the car, I'm driving over here, and I'm like, I, mean, I can see, but it's like, dude, I have monovision contacts, so one eye sees distance, one eye sees up close, and there's like no difference really, and I'm just like, what is going on? So it's kind of weird, but so I go into the bathroom when I get here and take one contact out, put it in the hand, and take the other contact out, put it in the eye, and put it in the... Oh, <laughs> I put the contacts in the wrong eyes. I don't know. It was one of those mornings uh, where, so I don't know if I put the contacts in the wrong things and I put the lid on wrong or if I, I don't even know what I did. But the, the point is, my perspective was blurred. My perspective was kind of way off. Even when I had them in my eyes, because I didn't have them right, that perspective wasn't quite right. And it's kind of what we've been learning with Joseph, the importance of perspective when we're going through difficult times especially, that we have the proper perspective of what uh, is happening, what's going on. Even when I was driving down the road, even if I had my contacts in right, I would have proper perspective, but I wouldn't know what's coming around the corner, right? I, I just have what's in front of me, and it gave me proper perspective. But it's the importance of, in our lives, as we go through the difficult times, we don't know what's coming around the corner, that we have proper perspective. And Joseph has been showing us that and teaching us that and helping us understand that we need to have it, um, especially in the sense of uh, difficult times. And so our question for us that we've been kind of looking at is, do we have that perspective? Can we trust that God's hand is at work, whether it's a good thing that's happening in our lives? Uh, do we see the good thing coming from God? Or do we think it's just something that we've put together? The bad things that come our way, are those coming from God, and if we don't really understand what he's doing or why he's doing it, can we trust him, that he's a good God, and that he's using it uh, for his purposes in our lives and for our good? And so whether we believe this truth or not, that God is always at work in our lives, 
um, it's the truth. <laughs> you know, so we can like it, we can dislike it, but the fact is God is at work in our, our lives. And so, again, we've talked about this pretty much every week. The number one thing he's trying to do is reveal who he is. He wants us to know that no matter what we're going through, that he's the God of comfort or that he's the God of peace or he's, he's the God who's going to give us strength to go through a difficult situation. He's going to give us the wisdom we need to make the right choices. And so we take a step of faith in those things and we watch God at work in those things. And if a person doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they don't have this relationship established with God through faith in Christ, that he's trying to reveal to them that, hey, I am the God who loves you. I'm the God who wants to save you. I'm the God who wants to have a relationship with you. And those of us who have made that decision, then whatever, whatever it is that we're going through, his desire is to remake us, to renew us, to, to change us, uh, to make us look more like Jesus Christ. And so Paul says this in Philippians, and he says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, so this, this work that God has done in our lives of salvation, freeing us from our sin and remaking you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. In other words, God is going to make sure that we get to the spiritual um, maturity level that he wants us to before he takes us to heaven. And he's going he's, he's gonna to make it happen. He's going to make sure that happens because he's a loving God. And he knows the best thing for us to become more like Christ. And I think sometimes this is where Christians struggle. because as, And we all do this at one level or another. We're kind of like, well, I got my ideas and what I think I should, you know, life should be like. And, and then when it's not what we want, we get a little frustrated with God because our plans are pretty good. We think, you know, we've got things kind of nailed down. And so Christians at times struggle because they're fighting against what God's trying to do. God knows the areas in our lives that we need to give over to him, that we need to let him change and mold and chip off the rough spots and smooth over those spots. And, and so the things that are going on in our lives, we can kind of know, oh, that's an area where God's trying to change me. And so we need to get with God. We need to spend time with him during those situations to find out from him, okay, Lord, where is it that you want me to change? What are the things that are going on in my life um, the where, where is it that I'm not trusting you for that growth? Well, last week, we left Judah and Joseph in a standoff, right? Now, I'm, I'm hoping you guys read ahead, but I've heard some of you guys have not. And so you're all like, oh, Harold, thank you so much. You're on Thanksgiving, you guys were thinking about this. As you're eating your turkey, man, what is going to happen on Sunday? I just can't believe it. Well, here it is. Here's what happens. They're in a face-off. You got Joseph and, and Judah. Now, jo Judah does not know Joseph as his brother, and so they're in his face-off. And if Joseph's like, or Judah's like, okay, listen, I'm, it's, this is how it's going to be. And Joseph's like, no, this is not how it's going to be. I'm the guy in control. I'm telling you how it's going to be. And Judah's like, no, for, my, for the sake of my father who will die if Benjamin doesn't come home, I'm going to stay here, and the brothers are going to go. And so there's his face-off. And Judah's looking at Joseph, and Joseph's becoming more and more red, and he's kind of shaking. He's not really sure what's happening because he's thinking that he could be angry and he's going to have us all killed. And then we read this. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And everyone's like, Oh, that's what happened. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? 
But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Like, I, was, I should have put in like a shocked emoji, right? They're all like, like you know. Like. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph. See, hello. Whom you sold into Egypt. Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourself. Now, if it was my brothers, I would be like, off with you. You know, I would even go maybe in King James on them. Off with thou, you know, something like that. Anyways, now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Why? For God sent me before you to preserve life. Again, we've kind of talked about this. God would allow this bad thing, these bad things to happen to Joseph? That doesn't seem fair, but he did for a reason. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing or harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, so we're going to talk about this in a, a little later too, but God allowed their sinful act towards Joseph to put Joseph in a position to save his brothers. Does that sound like somebody else that we know? I'll leave you hanging there. Next. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here. You guys didn't send me, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all of his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says, to, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. You shall live in a land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, and you and your, your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. Therefore I will also provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come, and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. So you, can you imagine the shock that must be on their faces? And there had to be a combination of fear, of relief, of, you know, how did all this take place? Why did all this take place? And Joseph, I'm sure, was just more of relief to finally get it out that he is actually their brother. Well, we're told that Joseph's entire staff, they're probably listening at the door, right? They all got kicked out. Like, what's he going to... Because think about it. He, had, he doesn't do this with everybody else, but these 10 guys keep showing up, and he keeps having them for dinner, and then he sends them away, and he keeps bringing them back. There's something going on. So they're listening. They hear what goes on. Oh, my word, that's his brothers. And, you know, so they get the rumor mill going, right? And it goes all the way up to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh then summons Joseph, and he says, Hey, listen, I want you to, to get your family down here. Bring him down to Goshen. I want them to have the best land. And so he, sells, he sends Joseph back to his brothers. And what they're going to do, they're going to take wagons. They've got new clothing that he's giving them. It says there's 20 donkeys that are full with gifts. So Pharaoh is giving gifts to Jacob. And they're providing food for them for their, for their journey back. And again, just think about how God is taking care of all that. Because this is God's hand at work. This is God's blessing because of what Joseph did and Joseph's faithfulness and God working through him and him allowing God to do that. Now his whole family is being blessed and Pharaoh is even in on it. So off the brothers go to get Jacob. Now, just for a reminder of where they're at, 
It's the red arrows that we're looking at here. So they're a little bit north of that upper arrow. The red arrow says Beersheba, but they're up in Hebron. They come down. This is now the 250-mile hike all right, to, into Goshen. And they're going to be up in that where, where it says Goshen there. So you can see there's a lot of water up there, so it's a real fertile land. And so they've got the best of the land to take care of their uh, sheep and all. And it, then this takes place. So he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he says, Don't fight! You know, which is kind of a... Isn't that funny? Is that not what a parent always says to the kids? Okay, we're leaving now, but don't fight. Well, my family, that's what we said. Anyways, so do not quarrel. Uh, Maybe that's funnier for you if I say do not quarrel on the journey. Anyways, then they went up from Egypt, thank you, and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. They told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and indeed he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. But he was stunned, for he did not believe them. Again, it seems like who would do that? When they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them, and when he had saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, It is enough, for my, for my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel set out with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, Here I am. He said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. Now, this is an important statement. Actually, Jacob talks a little bit more to Joseph about what the conversation was that he had with him. We're not going to read that, but um, what's happening is here is God made this promise to Abraham, right? We talked about. And that the promise to Abraham was that he was going to be of a great nation, they're going to have a certain amount of land, and that what impacts us is that through Israel was going to come a blessing for the entire world. And we know that that blessing is Jesus Christ. And so that, that promise was made to Abraham and to his seed, his offspring. And to his offspring, that was Isaac. And then God spoke to Isaac. And he said, this is going to happen through your offspring. He had two. So he said, no, it's going to be Jacob. And so Jacob has this. And now it's being told to Jacob so that he can then bring it down to his children. There's going to be this promise from God. So this is a really important thing. He says, I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. And so with that promise from God, it just kind of calms Jacob down even more. They head on down into Egypt to the area of Goshen. Now there's only about 70 people here. 400 years from now, there's going to be 2 to 3 million of them. And it's going to be the nation of Israel. But right now, it's Jacob slash Israel. And there's only about 70 of them as they come down into Goshen. So after a 250-mile hike, Joseph meets them in Goshen. We're told that when Jacob saw Joseph, he put his arms around him and he wept for a long time. Which, again, I don't think any of us can even imagine really that what he must have been going through, or Jacob must have been going through when he sees Joseph. So that Joseph takes five of his brothers, we're not told which ones, but he takes five of his brothers and his dad to go meet Pharaoh. Pharaoh again says, hey, I want to give you the best of the land. And by the way, if any of you guys are good with livestock, I'd like to hire some of you. So some of them got hired by Pharaoh to take care of his livestock. We're told that the famine in those five years gets so bad that the Egyptian people begin selling their land to Pharaoh 
so they could have food to eat. And by the time it's all over, every Egyptian pretty much has sold all their property to Pharaoh. So now Pharaoh owns the entire land. Everybody becomes a slave, basically, to Pharaoh, except for Jacob. It says that Jacob acquired land. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because the Egyptians were selling land, but Jacob was acquiring land. How could that happen? How does that work? Well, what did God say? I will be with you in Egypt. I will take care of you in Egypt. And so God's providing for them to not only grow as a nation, but for them to acquire land. And it's not going to be land that they're going to eventually hold until maybe later in the future, but... um, you know, so they're getting land, which is awesome, you know, pro, uh, provision from, from God. So life kind of settles into uh, a routine. The famine is over. We're told that Jacob lived there for a total of 17 years. And so probably about 10 to 12 years, life kind of gets back to normal. Everything's going along like a life would have back then. And so then Joseph gets word that uh, his father is dying. And so he goes up to see him. When he gets there, Jacob says to him, hey, listen, I want you to swear to me that when I die, you're going to take me and bury me back up in Canaan where my fathers are buried. And Joseph says, I can, I can do that. And things continue to get worse for Jacob, and so he calls for Joseph again. Joseph goes back up with his boys, and his, uh, uh, Jacob says, so listen, I'm, Manasseh and Ephraim, they're going to be mine, and whatever child you have after that is going to be yours, but I want to bless them as my own sons. And so he gives them a blessing. Then he brings in all the rest of the 12, and he gives each of them a blessing. Now, we have to understand something. When Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and anybody who the, the promise is flowing through from God, when they bless their family, it's kind of setting up a prophecy that this is how your family is going to be. This is what's going to happen to your descendants. And it always follows through. In fact, if you want to do kind of an interesting study, is uh, once Israel is out of Egypt 400 plus years from now, once they're in the land, and as they're in the land, you could do a study of how the different tribes, the descendants of these different brothers, how they responded to God and to what God wanted for their lives. But as it is, we just want to look at, at three of them. We have Reuben, Judah, and Joseph. Reuben is the oldest. And what's interesting about this, just pointing out, is that because he was not faithful, uh, by and large, uh, actually, um, he mentions the fact that he had slept with Bilhah, which is uh, Rachel's um, servant, maidservant, who also became a wife of Jacob, which we talked about. I won't go into all that. But, um, and he says, hey, listen, you and your descendants should have prominence because you're the oldest. And so the oldest would always have prominence. But because that he did this, and because of the other decisions he's made in life, his descendants will not be prominent in Israel. And if you look through Israel's history, you find that they have not been a prominent uh, tribe. Then he talks about Judah, and of course, we want to talk about Judah. Judah was a guy who was really messed up a few chapters ago, but then he starts standing up and showing that he's repented, that the brothers have probably repented, but he's kind of the focal point. He's kind of the one who's um, representing the brothers. And Jacob says to him, hey, listen, your descendants and all the descendants of the other tribes, the brothers, are going to bow down to you. In other words, you are, you're going to be the kingly uh, line. You're going to be the one who rules over Israel and the descendants. You'll overpower Israel's enemies. What's also interesting about this is that we see kind of a picture of Jesus Christ here in 
some of these phrases, I won't get into all of them, but one of them um, is this Lion of Judah. We hear that Jesus Christ is the Lion of Judah. That kind of goes back to Judah, because Judah was called a young lion. And his descendants would um, carry that through, and then Jesus becomes a Lion of Judah. It says his descendants will reign until Shiloh comes. And Shiloh means peace. And we know that Jesus Christ is the peace. That he is the one who provides peace with God. And ultimately that's what Israel is all about. At least it should be. Having his peace with God. And they will reign forever. The scepter shall not leave their hand. But we know Jesus Christ will reign forever. Not only king of Israel, but king of, of obviously the world. And then for Joseph, interesting, it's it's. He says a lot about who Joseph is and what Joseph has gone through, and he was committed to God, and he was faithful to God, even when attacked. And he says, hey, by the way, your descendants are going to be prominent in Israel. So it's kind of like a, oh, I thought there might be more here. But no, his descendants are going to be prominent and distinguished among the tribes. And then after Jacob gives these um, blessings, it says this, when Jacob finished charging or blessing his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. So Jacob finally uh, dies. He's, again, been living in this area for about 17 years. And when the time of mourning is over, Joseph then goes to Pharaoh and he asks for permission to take Jacob back to Canaan, another trip back up into Canaan, in order to bury him. And, and I just read this, I just want to read this, because it's amazing the impact that God allowed Joseph and even Jacob to have. Look what it says about who all went up into Canaan. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and the elders of the land of Egypt. I mean, here's, I mean, this guy had great prominence. People cared about what was going on in Joseph and his, in his family's life. And all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household, they left only the little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen. And it was a very great company, 250 miles up, 250 miles back down. And when it came to the thrusting floor of Atad, which is beyond Jordan, they lamented or mourned there with a very great sorrowful lamentation. And they observed seven days of mourning for his father. It says that the people in Canaan uh, were just like, wow, it's a sad day in Egypt that so many people have come up here to bury one of their own, at least in their, in their minds. So now the brothers are getting nervous again. Dad's gone. There's really nobody to keep Joseph from doing what he wants to do to the brothers. And so they start talking amongst themselves. What are we going to do? How do we, how do we work through this? How do we make sure things are still going smoothly between us and Joseph? And they do this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which, he, which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they, the, the messengers, spoke to him. So evidently things were good. There's no ramifications. And so after the message was sent, they decided to go up themselves. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? And the answer would be yes. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, 
in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people, both Jacob's family and the Egyptians, of course. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So as we understand, Joseph, the rest of his life, continued to respond with grace and forgiveness, providing for his brothers, making sure they had everything they needed to continue to grow and become the nation that they would eventually become. The author tells us, Moses, by the way, is the author, and he tells us that Joseph continued as a second-in-command. He lived until he was 110 years old. Before he died, he told the people, hey, listen, God's going to take you from here. He's going to move you out of this and take you back to the land of Canaan. Now, they didn't know that it was going to be another 400 years. And we say, well, man, you, know, you tell them this is going to happen, and I'm sure they sat there and they were wondering, when are we going to go back? When are we going to go back? When are we going to go back? For 400 years, that they were wondering, when are we going to go back? Is God going to fulfill his promises? Is God going to do what he says he was going to do? Did Joseph know what he was talking about? Well, we know the story. The next book, Exodus, talks about that and their return back to the nation. It's interesting because the people who are reading this firsthand is, are those that are going into the promised land. Those are the people who are going to be the fulfillment of what Joseph said. So you can tell the excitement that must be in their hearts as Joseph prophesied basically this is going to happen and they're the ones fulfilling it. So what does this all mean for us today? Well, we've hit hard, and I hope it's settled in our hearts and our minds, the whole idea that God is working through our trials, that God worked through Joseph, he's working through our trials to reveal who he is, to draw us into a relationship and to remake us to be more like Christ. But as I was thinking of today, or for today, this week, and I was kind of thinking through it and saying, well, you know, I could bring that up again, which I already have. And, uh, but, be like, you know, there's something more going on here. There's something more we can kind of sink our teeth into as we look at that. And that's this, that Joseph, with the way life went for him and the response that he had to trials, the response that he had to what his brothers did to him is a perfect picture, almost perfect picture, of Jesus Christ. We know Joseph wasn't perfect, that Jesus was perfect. But what happened in their lives are very similar. And so I just picked out uh, five or six things here this morning. I just want to uh, rip through real quickly here about Joseph being a picture of Jesus Christ. The first one is this, that, that both were servants. Literally. I mean, Joseph was literally a servant, a slave. Even when he was second in command, he was ultimately a slave. He was a servant. But both of them were servants, and they were both being used by God to accomplish his will. Look what Paul talks, says about Jesus in, in Philippians 2. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in a form of God, and so we know that God the Son became Jesus, and so he's always been God, but while on earth he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so he was, he was not going to take uh, that role of God in that sense, uh, in this sense, it says, but emptied himself. So he, he voluntarily gives up his glory and his power. And we, we know that the Holy Spirit earlier in the Gospels, the Holy Spirit is given to him in that sense to be the one who empowers him. And you're thinking, that's kind of weird. I mean, he's God. Why doesn't he just operate? Yes, he's God, but he's also man. And as man, he's being an example for us on how we're supposed to live life. And so as we, as, as we put our faith in Christ, God gives us 
God the Holy Spirit in our lives. And just like Jesus relied on the Holy Spirit to accomplish things that God called him to do, we rely on the Holy Spirit to accomplish what God's called us to do. And whereas Jesus was tempted by Satan and used Scripture, for instance, against the temptation to sin, we are, as Christians, to be using Scripture against the temptation to sin. It's that kind of thing. That, God, that Christ is our, is our example. And both of, those, um, both of those guys did that. Secondly, both obeyed God in their trials. Obviously, right? Joseph was a great example of that. Jesus was even a greater example of that. Paul goes on to say in the next verse that being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so Jesus was obedient and he went through a lot of trials, but the greatest of which was being put on the cross, that he was obedient to do that. Now why, why would Jesus have to be obedient to go to the cross? Well, if he hadn't, just like jo- Joseph um, if Joseph didn't get into his position, at least according to the story now, if he didn't get into his position, he wouldn't have been there for his brothers to provide for his brothers, his family, to keep them from physical starvation. Well, if it wasn't for Jesus doing what he did, he wouldn't have been in a position in order to keep us from spiritual starvation, to keep us from dying spiritually. And so here's what I was saying before, that both were put in a position to save the very people who sin, put them in that position. Joseph's brothers sinned against him, and their sin against him provided him a position to save them. Well, we've sinned against God. We've sinned against Christ. And and that's actually put him in a position in order to save us. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. God made Jesus who knew no sin to be our sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is a a theological thing that um, has huge practical implications for us. And it kind of blows your mind. That when, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he was our substitute, which we'll read in here in a bit, but he was our substitute. He took our place. He represented us. And so when God judged him in that time on the cross... If we ask God to forgive us and we believe Jesus did that for us, it says, this is saying that our, well, this is saying we get his righteousness, but our sin is put on Jesus. And then Jesus' righteousness, God's righteousness is put on us. Not saying that we become perfect, not saying that we become God, but as God views us, he doesn't view us anymore in our sin, but he views us in Jesus Christ, wrapped by Christ, his righteousness is given to us in order for us to have our sins forgiven and have a restored relationship with God. Now, why would Joseph do that for his brothers? Why would Jesus do that for us? It's because both loved those who didn't deserve to be loved. Joseph's brothers didn't deserve his love, not from a human standpoint. They deserved him wreaking some revenge. And when it comes to Jesus, Jesus, you know, he loves us, but, you know, we don't deserve to be loved. In fact, we deserve to be judged because we've sinned against him. First John, John says this, And this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, which is a big word that means substitute for our sins. And so where Joseph could have re- 
you know, sought revenge on his brothers. He didn't. He loved them. He gave them what they needed. He was being sacrificial. He didn't allow the hurtful emotions, the pain that he suffered to go against them. He withheld that, and he loved them. He took care of them. He provided for them. He gave them food. He gave them their money back. He just kept on heaping love upon them and forgiveness. And that's what Jesus does for us. Instead of judging us, which it'll happen in the future, but for now, here now, as we're alive today, we can know his forgiveness and restoration rather than judgment. And then the last one is this. Both because they loved, were ready and willing to forgive when asked. John, First uh, John 1, 9 says, If we confess or debit our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, it's interesting, even before, um, even before Joseph gave them forgiveness verbally, he had already demonstrated that he had forgiven them in his kindness to them and his, his grace to them. But then when they did come for forgiveness, he, he was already willing to forgive them because he'd already taken the steps to do that. It's the same thing with Jesus. God's already provided the opportunity for forgiveness to happen. He already showed that he loves us, that he's willing to forgive by going to the cross. Now it's just a step for us, those of us who have not made this decision, to seek him and ask him for the forgiveness that he's already provided for. So what's the, the impact for us today then? What's our takeaways? As the, the band comes up this morning, just got a couple takeaways for us as normal. And so the, the first one is this, uh, salvation. So if you're here this morning and you've never had that conversation with God where you admitted that you have sinned against him, that you're seeking to have his forgiveness and have that restored relationship, then for you, will you ask God to save you and restore your relationship with him? And as the ABCs show, it's just, it's very simple. It's your heart to God's heart, admitting that you're a sinner, that you've done things that are wrong, that you've broken God's laws, and then believing is that the biblical belief is to, to entrust yourself into the hands of. It's, it's saying, I believe God is going to take care of my spiritual welfare. And so you ask him for forgiveness, and you confess that. You just have a conversation with God. And here's what I'd like to do. Let's go ahead and close your eyes. And, um, and I'd just like to pray a prayer again. I don't know where everybody stands, and some people could be in church all their life and have never made this decision. And so I just want to give you an opportunity to do that, I lead you in a prayer. Again, the prayer isn't what saves you. It's it's your heart to God's heart. But if you just pray, pray something like this, God, I know that I'm a sinner and that I'm separated from you. But I also know and I believe I'm putting my full weight of trust on what you say, that Jesus took my punishment. And I ask you, based on that, to forgive me of my sin. I'm trusting in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. Thank you for saving me. And thank you for placing God, the Holy Spirit, into my life. In Jesus' name, amen. You can open your eyes. If you prayed that prayer this morning, I would love to know about it. You can just uh, come up and talk to me afterwards or just grab one of those Connect cards, put your name on it, mark on the back side and the blue side that you've prayed to accept Christ as your, as your Savior. And you can throw it in the, the bucket, offering bucket if you like. If you want me to contact you, which I'd love to be able to do and send you some information, you can put your contact information on there. But the second thing is, real quickly, for those of us who have already placed our faith in Christ, then we need to have 
and be willing to make the impact on other people's lives, allow God to work through us. And will you allow the sins of others against you to put you in a position to show them the Christ-like love? So we can get upset, we can get all frustrated, we can lash out and, get, and try to revenge, but what God wants us to do is respond back to them in love, with grace, with forgiveness, and in doing so, to even to draw them to Christ either for salvation or for a closer walk with Him if they already know Him. Let's go ahead and stand. We're going to close in prayer, and the band's going to play us out.